Well, this morning's sermon, like this morning's text, is very much a continuation of last week's message on Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. In fact, this sermon hinges, in large manner, on the very first word of verse 6, the word for, which links it to verse 5 and indicates that what Paul is about to do in the following passage, in verses 6 to 11, is to explain the astounding statement that he made in verse 5. In last week's message, I pointed out that verses 2 to 4 have found Paul in an apparently circular argument. Look up at verse 2 with me. Paul says, through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let me tell you what Paul appears to be saying. He appears to be saying that we Christians, we rejoice in the hope of glory, therefore we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that they produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So it is hope that enables us to persevere, and not just persevere, but rejoice in our sufferings, which leads to a proven and tested character, which results in a well-grounded hope. And the reason why that's kind of circular is because it begins with hope and it ends with hope. Essentially, Paul's saying you have to have hope in order to endure these sufferings which produce character, which produce hope. You've got to have hope in order to get hope. It's a circle. And Paul recognizes this. And that's where verse 5 comes in. How, How am I supposed to have hope in order to get hope if I need hope in order to get the hope that I need. Did you follow that? Neither did I. That's why we need verse 5. Verse 5 comes in and explains that the first and foundational hope of glory, verse 2, that hope which is able to sustain us through trials and tribulations and sufferings and is strengthened and refined by those fires of tribulation, it will not ultimately disappoint us. It will not ultimately put us to shame. We know this because at the beginning, something happened. That something that happened was an immediate experience of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Paul says, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. In conversion, at the very beginning of the Christian life, I want you to notice the past tense verbs here. Paul's looking at an experience that happened in the past, right? This has been poured out through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In conversion, God gives us the Holy Spirit, and the effect of receiving the Holy Spirit is that he causes us to experience, to feel, to know that we are loved by God. And Paul describes this as not just like a a trickle of love, but a pouring out, an effusion of God's love within our hearts. Now, my contention 
is that this effusion of God's love is an experience of the heart, not merely an inference of the mind. Now what I mean that is that this effusion of God's love is not merely a conclusion that we come to by working through propositional texts like this. God so loved the world, I'm part of the world, Therefore, God must love me. That's an inference of the mind from propositional truths. That's not what Paul's talking about in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul is talking about an experience felt in the heart, which is the seat of our intellect, our emotions, our will, our affections, an experience in which we feel and know ourselves loved by God. It's the difference between the process of audibly hearing and cognitively understanding in your brain the the words that your future spouse spoke to you when he or she first said, I love you. Hearing it and understanding it is one thing. Feeling those three little words and all of the emotions that it elicited in your soul is quite another. I further contend that this experience of which Paul speaks in verse 5 is known by every believer. Because Paul speaks of it as an inseparable effect of having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul says in Romans 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Every child of God, in other words, every Spirit-indwelt believer knows something of the experience of feeling loved by God. And yet, I think that this experience can be lesser or greater in its intensity depending upon a variety of factors And that increased intensity of the experience of God's love can and ought and indeed must be pursued, which is why we're here this morning. I came this morning in order to feel loved by God. And I came this morning in order to help you feel loved by God. But while this effusion of God's love is an experience that is wrought in our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is an experience of the heart that is inseparable from the rational faculty of the mind. The Christian religion, the Christian faith, is not a religion of the mind only as as if God could be known in the same way that I know algebra or in the same way that I know the periodic table of the elements. I may know the periodic table, but I don't feel loved by the periodic table. I don't have a relationship with it. God is not a system to be learned and memorized. God is a person, and he is a person who is known via a personal relationship. But neither is the Christian faith a religion of the heart only as if Christianity subsisted only in pleasant feelings and and passionate emotional highs rather than in historical events and objective truths. It's precisely because God is a person that a personal relationship implies that I know something about him. God has certain attributes. He is like this and he is not like this. 
He's performed certain acts in history. I cannot love someone, nor can I really feel loved by someone about whom I know nothing, or worse, about whom I believe false things. Christianity, then, is a religion of the head and the heart, never separated, always together. Therefore, even though this effusion of God's love is a work of the Spirit wrought in our hearts, it is a work of the Spirit which happens through the rational faculty of our minds. In other words, this effusion of God's love is mediated through the knowledge of historical events and objective truths. Let me demonstrate this with a a quote from John Piper who comments on this particular verse in this way. He says, The ultimate reason for this is that Christ would not be glorified by an experience that is not based upon the knowledge of Christ. And we know that the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to glorify Christ. If the Holy Spirit works like an electrical impulse and just causes us to have a happy buzz in the middle of the night, or on a Sunday morning, with no thoughts of Christ filling our head, then Christ would be no more honored than he is by a vivid high on heroin. The ultimate reason that the experience of the love of God is mediated through the knowledge of the historical work of Christ on the cross is that the experience is meant to give us joy and Christ glory. But Christ would not get glory unless our experience of the love of God is a response to the story of the love of God in the work of Christ. In other words, the subjective experience, the felt experience of God's love poured out within our hearts occurs as we meditate upon the objective work of Christ, which is the supreme demonstration of that love. Just like the rest of the Christian faith, this is head and heart, fact and feelings, knowledge and affection, truth and spirit. This is precisely why there is a four at the beginning of verse six. Because the subjective experience of the effusion of God's love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, verse five, is rooted in and mediated through the objective demonstration of God's love in sending Christ to die for sinners and in raising him to life again, verses 6 to 11. So if you want to feel loved by God, then you must look to the place where God supremely demonstrated his love for you, namely the cross of Christ. That is why Paul directs our attention to the death and resurrection of Jesus and to its tremendous benefit to sinners in verses 6 through 11 so that we would be enabled to feel the effusion of God's love spoken of in verse 5. Don't you want that? I do. I'm not kidding when I say that's why I came this morning. I came because I want to experience Romans 5.5. I want to know it. I want to feel it. I think I've known something of the experience of Romans 5.5, but I want more. I want it with greater frequency, and I want it with increased intensity. 
I want to feel something like what D.L. Moody felt in downtown Manhattan in the late 19th century when in between his preaching engagements, he's alone in his hotel room, and the love of God, he says, is just poured out upon him in wave upon wave upon wave until finally he had to pray and ask God to stay his hand. I want to ask God, that's enough. (laughs) I'm loved already. But I'm not there yet. And neither are most of you. But I want to get there. I want to feel loved by God personally, intensely, emotionally, savingly, sovereignly, eternally. How do you you get there? How do you experience that? There are two steps. First, you must direct your attention to that central historical event where God's love for sinners was supremely demonstrated, namely the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And second, you must pray because you can't make this happen. This is not the work of man. This is the work of the Spirit who has been given to us. So you must pray that the Spirit would take that supreme act of redemptive love and with it awaken your heart to assurance and joy. So that's what we seek this morning. We're going to follow Paul as he directs our minds to think about the supreme demonstration of God's redemptive love in the cross of Christ. And we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would flood our hearts so that we could feel the experience of that redeeming love. Now I see in this text three ways in which Paul highlights the love of God. Three ways in which God's love is demonstrated, which Paul wants us to meditate upon in order that we could feel loved by God. First, Paul says that God's love is demonstrated in the unworthiness of the objects of that love. This is the point of verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verses 6 to 8, Paul amplifies the depth and the nature of God's love for sinners by contrasting it with the love which mankind has for one another. This argument is based upon two universally recognized assumptions regarding love. The first is that self-sacrifice is the highest form of love. It assumes that we agree with that point. And we ought to. Because it's true. Jesus affirmed as much in the upper room with his disciples on the night before his death on the cross when he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the greatness of one's love is shown by what he is willing to give up for the one whom he loves. And the costliest gift which a person has to give is his own life. That's assumption number one. Assumption number two, on which Paul's argument is based, is that the less worthy the object of one's self-sacrifice, the greater the act of love. Now again, this truth is universally recognized. It's one thing for a soldier to give up his life for a man in his unit with whom he has formed a tight bond in the heat of battle. It's quite another thing 
for a soldier to give up his life for that guy in his unit whom he can't stand who always used to pick on him in basic training. It's one thing for a firefighter to rush into a burning building in order to save a child. It's quite another for him to give his life to save the very arsonist who set the blaze. Now, it's on the basis of those two assumptions that Paul constructs his argument. In verse 6, he just plainly declares that Christ died for the ungodly. Then in verse 7, he contrasts Christ's death for the ungodly with the kind of self-sacrificing love that can sometimes be found among humankind, where it's, it's not uncommon, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not uncommon to find men who are willing to die for their spouse or die for their child or die for their brothers in arms. It happens. We are wired to love those who are lovely, even to the highest degree of self-sacrifice. But still, this kind of sacrifice, Paul says, it's rare. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Now most commentators, and I agree, understand Paul's statement in the following way. The first man that Paul envisions, the righteous man, this is one who is upstanding, law-abiding. He does, he's not a criminal, he's a, he's a good citizen. The second man, Paul envisions, the good man, is a step above that. Okay? Not only is he righteous, not only is he a good law-abiding citizen, he's also known to be warm and, and generous and kind. Paul says that, that scarcely will one die for, for the first guy. The guy who's, who's righteous, he keeps the law, he's not a criminal, but he's not particularly friendly and warm and generous. One will scarcely die for that guy. It's, it's more likely that someone would die for the good man, the, the one who is not only law-abiding, but is also generous and warm and kind. But even then, it's only rarely that such displays of courage will find actual expression in human existence, which is what makes the death of Christ so astonishing. Because he died for those who are neither righteous nor good. But for the weak, verse 6, the ungodly, verse 6, the sinners, verse 8, and the enemies, verse 10. I want to look closely at those four descriptive terms. First, beginning of verse 6, Paul says that, that when we were weak, the word refers to, to a moral frailty rather than like a physical inability. It means that we were helpless. We were, we were powerless against the, the power of sin in our lives. We were powerless, helpless to save ourselves. He then says that when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly, ungodly, wicked, godless. It refers to someone for whom there's not a thought of God in his mind. He... he has no reverence for, he refuses to acknowledge and worship his creator. Christ died for that guy. Verse 8, sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That can either refer to sinners generally or sometimes it's actually used of, of people who are especially wicked. And then verse 10, while we were enemies. Man, that's a strong term. We were enemies. Of God. And this refers to someone who is totally opposed to God and to whom God is totally opposed. 
The enmity goes both ways. Leon Morris says this, an enemy is not a person who comes just a little bit short of being a friend. An enemy is someone who's in the opposite camp. And though it is true that sinners are at enmity to God, being hostile toward him, what is in view here is God's enmity towards those who were under his wrath. Verse 9. So the quality and the character of those for whom Christ died is astonishingly abysmal. Murderers, rapists, liars, cheats, blasphemers, idolaters, adulterers, pornographers, slavers, abusers, God-haters, every vile and wretched and filthy perversion of humanity was represented in the person of Christ when he died on the cross. Now, who would be willing to die for such a miserable mass of mankind? Well, Jesus would, Paul says. And more than that, Jesus did. And not only Jesus, but God in Christ. You'll notice that Paul focuses upon the death of Christ as the demonstration of God's love for sinners. In other words, it's not one of those arrangements where God was was so angry at us, he was ready to wipe us out, and Jesus came in and changed God's mind toward us by his death on the cross. Jesus came because the same God who was at enmity toward us also loved us with an everlasting love. The Father and the Son are one in the work of redemption. There is no opposition at the cross. The cross was just as much the demonstration of the Father's love for sinners as it was for the Son's. So, Why should we feel loved by God through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us? First, because God demonstrated his love for us by giving his beloved son to die for sinners who did not deserve it, who were unworthy of that love. And not merely unworthy, openly hostile toward him, his enemies. So greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his enemies in order that they might become his friends. The second way in which God's love is demonstrated is through the infinite value of the offering which it took to secure our salvation. So not only is the depth of love measured by the unworthiness of its object, it's also measured in the costliness or the value of that which is offered. John Stott says this, Moreover, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly partly by the unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. So Paul demonstrates the value of of this offering in two ways. First, I want you to notice who it was that was offered. Now Paul identifies him in verses 6 and verse 8 as Christ, right? Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the Messiah, the the anointed one, the promised redeemer of God's people. But in verse 10, Paul ratchets it up a notch, and he says that God reconciled his enemies to himself through the death of his son. Well, now that makes it intimate. 
and personal. Stott again writes, Formerly God had sent his prophets and sometimes angels, but now he sent his only son. And in giving his son, he was giving himself. There's nothing that God loves more than his son. Nothing. And neither was there anything of greater value in all the universe than the eternal and glorious Son of God. Yet it was the Son whom God gave to redeem His enemies. The second way this, the value of this offering is demonstrated is in the way in which it was offered. Christ died for sinners. God gave His Son to die. And what makes this offering so inexpressible is not the pain which Christ endured on the cross, although that was immense. Rather, it's the shame endured by Christ at the cross. Our limited human finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite humiliation endured by the eternal, glorious Son of God when He became incarnate in frail human flesh, subject to suffering and sickness and weakness. But what's more, in the weakness of His human flesh, the eternal Son of God subjected Himself to the enemy of all mankind, namely death. And not just any death, the most humiliating, ignominious death ever devised, the death of the cross. It's no wonder that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross despising its, not pain, but shame. And that Paul writes that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So the most glorious being in all of the universe, Jesus, gave himself up to the most shameful experience in all the universe, namely death. That's the cost of the gift, and it could not have been higher. And yet, God paid it willingly in order to redeem you from your sins. That's why you should feel loved. Finally, God's love is demonstrated in the accomplishment of its objective. So not only is the depth of love demonstrated in the unworthiness of its object, right? It's one thing to love someone who is lovely. It's quite another to love your enemy. And not only is the depth of God's love demonstrated in the cost that he was willing to pay in order to demonstrate that love, right? It's one thing to scrounge around for for a couple of bucks in order to buy your girlfriend a rose. It's another thing to work two jobs for months on end in order to buy her an engagement ring. But the depth of love is also demonstrated in the greatness of its objective. What is it directed towards? It's one thing to help someone with their algebra homework in order that they complete, can complete that night's assignment. It's another thing to spend countless hours and weeks upon weeks helping them get through college algebra in order that they can graduate and earn their degree and enter into a rewarding career. It's one thing to rescue someone from imminent death and bring them back into this temporal life. Think of someone drowning or someone trapped in a burning house or someone flatlined on an operating room table. That's one thing. It's quite another thing to rescue sinners from the wrath of God and bring them into everlasting life and joy in a new heaven and a new earth. That's another thing. Yet that is precisely what has been accomplished through the death of Christ. Verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, 
I'm sorry, enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what did Christ's death accomplish for those whom God loves? Paul lists four accomplishments, and I want to walk through them because Paul intends for us to take these four accomplishments and ground our hope of glory and our experience of the love of God in them. So four accomplishments of the death of Christ. First, Paul says, verse 9, that we have now been justified by his blood. So the first accomplishment was our justification. Christ died to justify us in the sight of God. Now, we've spoken a lot about justification over the past few months, ever since Romans 3.21, really. So I'm only going to briefly define the term this morning. Justification refers to the change in our legal status, our change in, in our status in the judgment of God that resulted from a double imputation, a double exchange in which our sins were imputed to Christ and punished in him at the cross and his righteousness is imputed to us through faith. By his blood, in verse 9, puts Paul's focus upon the the wrath-averting, propitiatory nature of justification. The death of Christ which enabled God to justify the unrighteous while at the same time maintaining his own righteousness. So why should you feel loved by God? Because Christ died in order to justify you in God's sight. He took your sin from you, put it on Christ, punished it in him, and he took Christ's righteousness and he gives it to you freely by his grace through faith alone. Second, Paul says that since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the second accomplishment of Christ's death is our salvation, understood here as the final salvation from the wrath of God, which is to come at the final judgment. On the day of wrath, when Christ comes in power and glory to bring salvation to his elect and to, and to bring judgment upon the wicked, those who are justified will be those who are saved. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who's he going to deliver? Those whom he has justified. All those whom he has justified. The key point Paul is making is that our future salvation is assured by our present justification, which was secured by the blood of Christ. When Christ died, it set in motion an unbreakable chain of events which will lead irrevocably to our eternal salvation. That's why you ought to feel loved by God. Third, Paul says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the third accomplishment is our reconciliation, which refers to the change of our relationship with God. So the death of Christ secured our justification. It changed our status in the sight of God's law. No longer are we considered guilty before him. Now we're accounted righteous. But now that our sin and our guilt has been removed, 
so has God's wrath and enmity. He's no longer angry with us. We're no longer his enemies. Now he smiles upon us. He counts us his friends. And by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit within us, our disposition towards God has changed as well. No longer are we hostile toward him. No longer do we fear him. Now we love him. So that through the death of Christ, God has been reconciled to us, and we have been reconciled to God. That's why you ought to feel loved. Finally, though, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What does this mean? Well, if you notice, verse 9 and verse 10 are, are parallel to one another. And since the second half of verse 9 pointed to a future salvation, a future event, I think the second half of verse 10 points to a future event as well. Verse 9 pointed to the future salvation from God's coming wrath. Verse 10 focuses upon a future salvation unto everlasting life. In other words, I think the fourth accomplishment of Christ's death and his resurrection life is our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Who's that? Those whom he loves, whom he has justified, whom he has reconciled to himself. When Christ comes on the last day, he's going to utter his sovereign command, and the dead of all the earth shall rise, some for judgment and some for salvation. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And what verse 10 promises is that those who have been reconciled to God through the death of his son will be in the first category. They shall certainly be saved on the day of resurrection unto everlasting life. So how does Paul's argument in these verses work? Well, verses 9 and 10 are, are parallel in their arrangement. And in each verse, Paul argues from the greater, the harder thing to do, to the lesser the easier thing to do. He argues from the temporal, the things that concern this time, to the eternal, the things that concern for eternity. He says this, if God has taken the extraordinary step of justifying us through the blood of Christ, how much more can he be trusted to keep us safe in the day of wrath? If God has done the unthinkable in reconciling us to himself while we were still his enemies... How much more can he be trusted to raise us to everlasting life now that we are his friends? And what's the result of all of this? What is the experiential, presently felt result? We'll look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The rejoice, or the result, is joy. So Paul began with an experience and he ends with the same experience. What experience is that? The experience of knowing and feeling yourself loved by the God of the universe. 
personally, eternally, savingly, sovereignly, freely, individually loved, which produces a confidence and an indomitable joy. And how can you know that God loves you like that? Paul has provided in this text two proofs. The subjective experience of feeling loved through the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and the objective demonstration of God's love through the death of Jesus Christ, verses 6 to 11. But the second must come first. It is only in considering and meditating upon the objective demonstration of God's love for us in the death of Christ that we come to subjectively experience God's love through the Spirit. The Spirit pours out into our hearts an effusion of God's love as we look to Christ because it is the goal of the Spirit to glorify the Son. So if you would experience the joy that comes from knowing and feeling yourself loved by God, look to the cross. Meditate upon the fact that while you were weak, ungodly, sinful, an enemy, Christ died for you. Meditate upon the gospel truth that his death has accomplished our justification through faith, and this guarantees our ultimate salvation from the coming wrath and judgment at the end of the age. Meditate upon the gospel truth that Christ's death has accomplished our reconciliation to God, and that this reconciliation guarantees our resurrection unto everlasting life. And then pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would meet you in these meditations and would open up within your heart a fountain of love and joy and wonder at the sovereign love of God for such as you. Now last week I shared with you the story of Charles Wesley's conversion and how it centered upon his desire to feel, not just know, feel Galatians 2.20, which says that God loved us and gave himself for us. Charles said, I want to I feel that God really does love me, Charles, and that he really did give himself for me, Charles. And what was clear in the account of his conversion was that this experience of the love of God came as he meditated upon the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Christ. He immortalized that connection in that hymn which we sang after the sermon last week entitled Free Grace or And Can It Be. He writes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He's thinking about Christ's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? He thinks on the cross And he feels God's love. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. You see the connection? He felt loved by God when he meditated upon the blood and the death of Christ on the cross. I want to end this morning with another testimony from the annals of history. This time, David Brainerd, the 18th century missionary to the Delaware Indians. We wouldn't know much about David Brainerd had it not been for the fact that he found his way 
dying of consumption or tuberculosis, he found his way to Northampton, Massachusetts in May of 1747 to the home of Jonathan Edwards, where he would die a couple of months later at the age of 29. Edwards was so impressed with this young man during the short time that he knew him that after Brainerd's death, he edited and published Brainerd's diaries, which became an international bestseller and introduced David Brainerd to the larger evangelical world. But what drew my attention to Brainerd when I was writing this sermon was something that he wrote in his diary about his ministry among the Delaware Indians. Now, Brainerd was a Puritan. He was an heir of, of the New England Puritanism, uh, which, which said that the best way to prepare the heart to receive the gospel of Christ is with the full-throated preaching of the terrors of the law and of divine judgment. That was Brainerd's world. In other words, he would have been in absolute agreement with Jonathan Edwards standing in the pulpit and preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. But in his diary, Brainerd writes that he noticed something during his ministry among the Indians. He says it was not the terrors of the law nor the threat of divine judgment that actually succeeded in reaching them. Brainerd wrote this, The more I discoursed on the love and the compassion of God in sending his son to suffer for the sins of men, the more I invited them to come and partake of his love, the more their distress was aggravated because they felt themselves unable to come. It was surprising to me to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel when there was not a word of terror spoken to them. Isn't that interesting? It was not the terror of the law. Rather, it was the gospel of God's love demonstrated in the death of Christ for sinners that melted the hearts of the Indians. God loves you. Hear that this morning. God loves you. In spite of your sins, in spite of your natural hostility toward Him, in spite of your, your long history of rebellion against Him where you've, you've said, I don't want you to be God over me to tell me what to do and where to go and how to feel and how to act. I want to be my own God. In spite of all of that, God loves you. And he demonstrated his love by giving his only begotten son to bleed and to die in order to justify you and to reconcile you to himself, to save you from his coming wrath and to raise you to everlasting life. So my prayer this morning is that the Spirit would pierce your hearts with what Brainerd called the tender and melting invitations of the gospel. God melt us with your love.